we're on. Ah, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, not Aldi cider, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that sounds like that was no good. It says it's premium European too. That's so disappointing. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I have enjoyed the odd storm lager, like the actual Aldi home brand beer. Yeah, I actually like them. But the cider has just got awful, so <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. All right, well, anti-advertisement for Aldi. We advertised their instant coffee before, so, you know, we've got to balance it out. Welcome, everybody, to the Affix Podcast. Affixes, aficionados, fixes, you're all welcome here. You're all especially welcome here, in fact. This is the fortnightly podcast where we discuss the musings of the various folks out there in the internet intelligentsia, looking at podcasts, looking at maybe one day we'll get to a YouTube video, who knows, but generally blog posts, occasionally books, who knows. Yep, plenty of substacks, lots of substacks. Oh, so many substacks. I feel like so we're predominantly just shilling substack at this minute. Maybe they should pay us. Maybe maybe we should get on substack. I think Richard Haney is on substack and all he does is say, I was on this podcast, you should go listen to it. Like yep. that's 90% of the emails I get from him. Sometimes I do listen, but not that often. <laughs> nice one. And, you know, doing our best to push that you should go buy some carbon offsets. Just going to put that out yes, there again. That seems to be our major impact on the world is encourage people to buy our carbon offsets, which I think is the correct thing to do. And occasionally inspire people to reinstall Diablo 2, of course. We have done that. That's true. We have done that. How close are we to the new Diablo 2? Wait, no, save it for the Diablo section. (laughs) Leave them on the edge of their seat. (laughs) So, yes, of course, outside of our discussions on the internet and intelligentsia, we do talk about Diablo 2 at the end of every episode, which many people just decide to just tune out and leave the podcast, which, you know what, I'm fine with. It's cool. And we also make silly bets with the high stakes of a coffee, however we can weave it into that week's discussion. So... Who knows how we'll go today? I'm interested. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I, better, I better do some deep thinking while you're talking rather than listening to you during this podcast. Great. Nothing like a disengaged speaking partner. <laughs> I mean, all I usually do is daydream, so actually thinking about something might be better. That's fair. Ah, but every week, we generally start off with a bit of feedback to ourselves and feedback from the audience. And sorry to disappoint, but I have no feedback to ourselves on the previous episode. While I was editing it, I think I was just blitzing through it. I feel like we covered the conversation fairly well. We've covered inequality previously. I'm still quite enamored with the views. I guess also by having two halves of the podcast being on essentially the same topic gives us more room to expand on our ideas. Yeah, definitely fair on that. And nice to weave in the conversation that we've had many, many times on Amazon in particular and what what disempowering Jeff Bezos would it look like. Yeah, what the actual mechanism of how that works. Yeah, because it's important to think these things through, I think. Actually, now that I think it through, this has been a thought that I have considered a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And it's not necessarily specifically related to that conversation, but it kind of falls into the realm of, say the government took this over. Like everyone who is against billionaires, Mm. not everyone, but there's commonly an argument made that it is anti-democratic. Like these people gained all this power through open market mechanisms. They weren't voted into power. And the thing that I've been thinking again and again over the last couple of weeks is, well, if the government took it over, the people who are running it aren't going to be voted into power either. Like, at the ultimate head, sure, it'll be, be a, a parliament minister or whatever. But yeah, it'll be a bureaucrat yep. who just got in through a job interview and then worked their way up the ranks within the government organisation. And I feel like a lot of people who are pro-government are just blind to the bureaucracy that sits behind every governmental operation that they're not actually elected whatsoever. Like, here's a question I genuinely want to know the answer to, given you live in Canberra and your parents have both been bureaucrats. What's the hiring and firing power of an MP? Like, if a new government takes over... of an MP? That is a really interesting question. I very much hope we get feedback on that. I know there are, like, departmental secretaries and that kind of thing, and I would have to assume that the minister ultimately selects who they want their secretaries to be, but possibly they've got a pretty limited pool of candidates that they can choose from. I really don't know. I know in the US it's quite common for just party cronies and friends of the particular minister or whatever to be parachuted to the very top of an organisation. It's actually somewhat rare in many organisations for someone to work their way up and through the ranks and become the lead. That's not a career path. That's not how you become the lead of the, I don't know, Department of Housing or whatever. It's always just a friend of whoever's in charge of that posting. But I don't know in Canberra 
I have no idea. Yeah, right. Okay. So if it, like Barnaby Joyce was made Minister for Agriculture or whatever, yep. it's not necessarily that he could have a say in whether this, I don't know, SES1 job actually doing a bad job and they need to get rid of him. Yeah, they must. Like the buck stops with them ultimately. They are setting the direction for the department. Someone's got to hire and fire those people unless it all comes out of a PM&C type area. Like that's Prime Minister and Cabinet and maybe all hiring and firing decisions across departments get made there. That's, this is me purely speculating. I'm sure we can find out the answer in two weeks' time because I am very curious myself awesome. as to what level of power the ministers have over their deep state, if you want to call it that, energy, because deep state sounds real cool. It's genuinely a thing I'm curious about because I have led departments. I know, honestly, how hard it was to fire in our internal bureaucracy. There's quite a process about that. and It's much harder in the government. <laughs> yeah, and that's ex- everything I hear from people working in different departments that I've worked with, your job's secure. At worst, you're going to get transferred to a different area in the same department. Yep, probably. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a thought I have. It's like, if you think Amazon's bad because Jeff Bezos is at the top, well, if the government takes over Amazon, the head of Amazon operations for the government is just going to be some unknown bureaucrat and they're not really going to be changing ever. Um, I mean, you got to. It just depends on your opinion of democratic accountability, right? I have voiced my skepticism, which may get me crucified in Canberra, that I'm almost more in favour of market accountability than democratic accountability, because I just don't think we, as an electorate, hold our politicians particularly accountable in the same way that we let companies grow and go bankrupt. I think that I'm not sure I want ultimate corporate power, but I am like much more sceptical of democratic power than many people. I think that we don't do well, a good th- job. And maybe this is what I was getting at, and maybe this is how it ties to last week's conversation because you did make that comment and that's what i want to understand okay we have democratic power through elected officials but all this stuff is run by the bureaucracy and if the elected officials don't have the ability to get rid of the bureaucracy do we actually have any influence on government power they have i wonder whether it's cultural or how much pushback there is i think that the minister has very strong uh say in the direction of their department like what the minister says i want to brief on this i want a policy on that that happens in the department there's no slow rolling or pencil pushing at least from the people at the levels i've heard which is sort of mid to high level but i I don't know anyone at the absolute upper echelons of any government department Uh, um actually maybe i do but i haven't talked to them particularly in depth about these things and i don't think they listen to the podcast very sadly the the upper leadership of a department tends to try to enact the will of the minister the minister is actually the one setting the direction the upper leadership know how to get it done through the department that's certainly the impression i get i don't think there's any connivory or skullduggery or pushback or we have our own agenda eh, there's some of it there's not zero but I, I think that the ministers have got a very very loud voice in the room of the department yeah it's good to flesh that out and if i continue to just make my thoughts on this explicit as i think it through because mm. i'm always happy to be pulled up on it because i've only ever had one government job and it was for like three months and i was actually working for a private contractor who was working for that government department mm. I should actually know this because I'm part of the democracy, right? The elected ministers have strategic direction and can get kind of policy outcomes. But when it comes to actual operational effectiveness and like, I don't know, prioritizing customer service like Amazon does so well. Yep, yep, yep. Their ability to influence that is always going to be vastly limited by the actual HR policies that are prevalent throughout. Yes government operations. And and the competency of the leadership team and the competency the whole way up and down the stack. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say, you know, the minister can make a, a two sentence decree. I want to support X or I want to direct funding from X to Y or those kind of things, which is within their remit, presumably. And the fleshing out of the policy is a lot of document writing. Like writing policy is a many, many person job. I don't even know how many, but like turning that two sentence vague grand idea into what are we actually going to do is a huge amount of work. And that is, I think, what a lot of government departments do. And so that gives you influence of putting your own thing, but it still gets read and signed off by the minister, I think, to say, yes, this is the policy that I wanted. Cool. All right. There you go. That wasn't a conversation I was expecting to have whatsoever. No, me either. And and it makes me wonder in my, I don't trust democratic power that much. Do I not trust the electorate to hold the politicians to account or do I not trust the politicians to hold the government to account? And it may be a bit of both, but I actually think I feel more strongly about the electorate holding the politicians to account. Hmm. I'm not sure. I guess what it makes me feel next time I go to an election is I need to focus my prioritization of political preferences on Mm. strategies exclusively, not on execution. Probably. We can't actually influence execution. That's kind of, your influence on execution is vastly limited. It's very low. I have heard 
Yeah, sometimes like for the, the crown piece of policy, the top level politicians, I heard this, I don't know whether it's true, I don't know whether or not it was heard secondhand at a pub kind of thing, but Rudd Gillard were pretty hands-on in the shaping of the policy for the mining tax. They wanted that to be the piece of legislation that defined, I think it was Rudd at the time, yep. his, I want to say rain, but rain's not the white <laughs> road. Leadership. His leadership, his his government, that was the one that they wanted to do. And the opinion was that that was completely screwed up because the way it was written was in it was a gigantic loophole, which was like, cool, for, for two years we're going to do nothing but spend on CapEx and then we'll make the profits later. And so the super tax won't actually do anything. And that was because it was written by a couple of career politicians rather than a couple of career bureaucrats. Mm. So that's an opinion of where you know ministers, the prime minister in that instance, got really, really hands-on in the nitty-gritty details and possibly got it wrong. And I think that that was an exception. That is exceptional for them to get like that hands-on into the detail. Yeah, interesting. Which it would have to be, right? There's only 150 politicians. They cannot possibly be across everything that the government touches. The government's still, what is it, a quarter to a third of our GDP? Yeah. You you just can't, as 150 people, control that much money with any kind of coherence. It's an an impossible ask. Yeah, definitely agree with that. (laughs) Cool. Good tangent. Cool. So that was my zero feedback feedback. Somehow we got there. Nice. Somehow we got there. Very nice. Well, excellent feedback to yourself, Brian. We got one email from a listener, so I'm going to use that for a bit of a kickoff to discussion on inequality and billionaires, etc. And I want to pick out one line from it particularly because I, I disagree with it. And I'm sorry, listener, because you are a Patreon, which means you're a very close listener and a close friend of mine or, you know, extremely close to mine. But is talking about billionaires and... You know, did the Martin Bailey is like, I don't mind there being billionaires, but you know, the fact remains that there are a large amount of people who don't have enough food, water, and shelter, which is a very difficult problem and one that is quite reasonable. Is like, why does someone get to have a billion dollars when there are other people who literally cannot feed themselves and are starving to death? That is unfair in the most grotesque possible way, which I agree with. But the second line is, you know, when I was young, we had this conversation around the dinner table, and the answer was for everyone to have something, we have to have less right? If we're going to make other people have something, we have to have less. And I pretty much disagree with this. I mean, it's, it's literally true, I suppose, but I disagree that this is in any way the way that we will solve poverty is by making everyone have less. I think that the electorate in general revolts and revolts when you have less. And I think that the only way that we eliminate poverty is by economically growing our way out of it. Yeah. You made a quick comment at the start there being like, I guess it's true, but it's not true. It is specifically not true. It is only true in the world of zero-sum games, which we are not at the limits of productive capability of the world, and we still have positive-sum games to play in terms of producing more, and therefore everyone else can get more and suffer less. Yeah. Sorry, I may have misquoted. The word only is not in the sentence, but for everyone to have something, we have to have less. And then, right. yeah, I, I don't think that's true. I do not think that's true. Yeah, I think that is abjectly false. Now, the trouble is... The people who are suffering the most in the world are generally in situations where people are ruling who have that mindset. There are warlords who are impeding even your attempts at charity to give people in the third world food and make sure that they are not suffering and make sure that they are fed. And the way to get rid of warlords is quite complicated. It's a very difficult problem. And taking $50 billion out of, or heck, take half the value of every billionaire in the US, it's still it's not going to solve that problem. Yep. No, like, I don't think it is. It is just one of those incredibly difficult problems. And economic growth is one of the things that helps empower everyone and potentially would alleviate some of those burdens. I don't know that it's the only solution. Honestly, I don't know that it's an adequate solution. It will require a political solution at some level of negotiation, of getting people to step down from literally executing people and having power at that level. How you do it, it's complicated. And I don't know that us just having less actually does anything towards that solution. No, no. So I just, I think I wanted to push back on the zero-sum mindset. And yeah, I mean, we're not going to solve all the world's problems. I think that the the strife in Afghanistan proves that you can throw trillions of dollars at a problem and try to help those people, and it still doesn't work after 20 years. So you could have taken half of the billionaire's wealth for all of that time. I wonder whether that would cover the cost of the war in Iraq. Possibly not. And that's one small state that we were unable to improve the lives of at all. You say small state. Afghanistan's got a bigger population than Australia, right? Well, Australia's a very small state. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah, it is an incredibly difficult problem. I can understand the perspective and it's very natural to get to that zero-sum worldview. Did you read the Is Haiti Governable Right Now? The Bloomberg article from Tyler? So not in his Marginal Revolution feed? Probably not. 
So, I mean, I, I haven't read it for a bit and I have unfortunately not read it in preparation for this podcast. I've just opened it in the other window to skim. But he makes the argument that foreign aid flowing into Haiti has basically eliminated there being any chance of a healthy domestic economy because a lot of economics grows out of their, you know, food is an easy thing to produce. And so it's an, a good base step. But if your market is just being flooded with free food from foreign people, then there is no way to build up a domestic industry because you can't compete with the Red Cross who is literally giving food away. It is, you know, not totally impossible, but it's basically impossible. And the number of, again, strongman dictators, whatever you want to call them, who step into this flow of cash that is coming from foreign aid to try to help a humanitarian crisis. We're taking taxpayer monies from around the Western rich world and giving it to these poor people in the hopes that it will help them. And we just about seem to have trapped them into a situation where they can never rise above the subsistence level that they're at because the incentives aren't to build a new business or even a small business feeding people or whatever. The incentives are to work out how much of this foreign aid that you can get and grab it. And that is zero sum. Like there's a limit to how much foreign aid is going to pour into the country. So everything that you grab is something that I can't grab. Yeah. At an abstract view, you'd think, okay, well, that doesn't actually still inherently eliminate the possibility of cooperation and people growing their own lifestyle underneath it. The trouble is the meta-level destabilization and agglomeration of violent power around specific individuals, which then holds people back from cooperating and gaining their own power because those dictators, etc., that you just mentioned, see that as a threat and they see it as a zero-sum game. And that's, that's sure. the meta-level problem. But, you know... At a fundamental level, I could see someone like Brian Kaplan looking at this and saying, yeah, but there's nothing actually stopping those people from creating a market and working effectively individually. And it's like, well, no, there is. There's a person who's got a lot of guns. Yeah. Well, what Brian Kaplan would actually say is that the, the real tragedy here is that America doesn't just open its borders and then everyone from Haiti come and, you know, work in my garden, which That's actually fair. may genuinely be a better solution than continuing to live in Haiti. Brian Kaplan's really into open borders. He thinks that, you know, visas or... Any kind of restriction on movement around the globe is the world's biggest tragedy. I think literally the world's biggest tragedy is how he often frames it. Yeah. And, you know, on the Haiti front, I would 100% agree with him. I think yeah. where there is such powerful institutions that we've just discussed are so incredibly difficult to address. If you can just get people and shift them to a place with better institutions, that's better. That's better. That's better for the people. Well, actually, no. Everyone. You don't get people and shift them. You let the people shift themselves. Is probably the Yeah, let them shift that. themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is more feedback than I expected to get out of this because I'm not even done with the email. But um, <laughs> it reminds me of a book that we've both read, which the fourth chapter is coming out later this year. I hope Terra Ignota is a sci-fi book with a drastically different, you know, social structure. Blah blah blah, and it's fascinating. It's my favorite series ever. But quite apart from that, the way their nations are structured, or they're not even nations; they're called hives, basically. So you might live under the Mason's hive, or you might live under the Black Hive, or whatever. But you are completely free at any time to choose a new hive. So you might like the Masons and you like their rules and you like their social security state or whatever. But if you disagree with them, you can just leave. And so the, the Masons have a dictator for life and they are chosen, not hereditary, but the, the current dictator chooses the next dictator and you can't ever elect them or whatever. And that man holds swear millions of people. And the only say they have is to leave. So I wonder if, you know, Afghanistan, if we just let anyone out of Afghanistan as a refugee into a new country or out of Haiti or whatever, Caused disruptions, definitely caused disruptions with the Somalian refugee crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But is that the way that you sap these warlords' power? If the people under their thumb don't like it, then they leave and they come to a country where they don't feel so much under their thumb. Yeah, I can see that. There's definitely a lot going on in Terra Ignota that makes it more believable that that can happen. <laughs> yeah, sure. And you've got to be careful from reasoning from science fiction because it's always a just so world that works perfectly because that's how the author wants it to work with exactly the flaws to make the story yeah. a problem. But it does feel like a way out, and I'm not sure this is a good way out, but a way out of letting these people no longer live under a dictator is at least letting them change country. Yeah. The problem with it is the physical reality of it, exactly as mm. we saw mm. with the massive refugee crisis from Syria, basically. Essentially, with mass migrations, you still you have to build a lot of infrastructure very, very quickly, or you're having a lot of people suffering in your country. And people hate seeing people suffer in their country. Yeah. Yeah, A mass migration of several million people into Australia, we might be able to cope in the long run with an increased population of 5 million in the next 10 years. But those 10 years are going to be really, really yeah, it's gonna be trying. It's going to be real rough. Yeah, and it's going to be a very difficult transition. I don't know. We're going through coronavirus at the minute and 
there's quite a lot of people who are very vocal about having a zero COVID strategy. And I wonder, I don't think those people could handle seeing Syrian refugees have to live in basically tent camps while we try and build a city to actually house them. Yeah, and it's not without its problems, but it still may be a better life for them. I just oh, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I think it'd be better. It's just, it's just one of those uh, political problems. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a political football that is very hard to pass. It is, it is a difficult one to get over the line. I'm not sure we ever will, but it's just interesting to me. And the other point I was going to make is I do remember this being bandied about and possibly it could have been more effective as a solution to the, the Hong Kong Yes. Repatriation, whatever you want to call about it, call it sort of thing, with China gradually exercising more and more laws over Hong Kong with the, the extradition laws that were the real flashpoint for a lot of the Hong Kong protests, as I understand it. You know, one of the arguments is like Britain should just say, well, you were a protectorate. Every Hong Kong citizen is a given a free lifetime visa to Britain. If you want to move to Britain, you I can. I thought they actually anyone. did that. Did they actually do that? Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it was just a conversation as to whether Australia should do it as well. UK, oh. Hong Kong visa. Uh, they received 34,000 visa requests, is what the thing is telling me. I just thought they, like, massively... It's not granted. No. So it's still a process. Hong Kong rush for special UK visas. So there is some special process to do with it, but it's not like just you get citizenship. There you go. Interesting. Right. Well, that would be perhaps be a, an easier situation because Hong Kongese are at least culturally somewhat more similar to... British people and come with a lot of wealth. And if you think that the reason oh, yeah. China wants Hong Kong is because of all of their wealth and you know technical ability and talent, etc., then letting them all move to Britain really makes that not as useful to China. And you know means that the Hong Kong citizens don't have to live under Chinese rule. It's not a good situation still, right? They still lose their country, but it is perhaps a better situation. Yeah, totally. Wow. This, this podcast is going ways that I didn't expect. This is what happens. <laughs> yeah, sure. This is what we do. I was just really worried that this was going to be like a 20-minute in-out quick strike done. Hmm, interesting. Well. No, I'm not done with this email. So the (laughs) the final line is like talking about fairness. I mean, this is actually the opposite, but talking about fairness and talking about difficult problems, sometimes it's just an excuse to throw up your hands and say, oh, well, nothing can be done, so I'm going to spend a bunch of money on a Porsche, which perhaps I'm guilty of. Not that I bought a Porsche, dear listener, but, you know, my charitable donations are well below 10%, which is the effect of altruism, you know normal point of what you're allowed to say, you know, then you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, I don't know. We have billionaires, we have people literally starving. Those two problems feel like they should be able to solve each other, but they can't. So do we just do nothing? What do we do? I think people just need to figure out their own philosophy and do their best to come up with a coherent system that they can work with and then make the decisions based on that. Sure. What do you think of like the giving pledge, which is you should just give 10% of your salary as a tithe almost to a charity and effective altruism will suggest which charity they think that should be. And then you're off the hook. Your guilt is done. It's no longer a goal that you have to achieve. It's just like, this is what you do for the rest of your life. You give 10% of your money and then you don't have to worry about being a bad person or am I having a negative impact on the world or, you know, should I give more to charity? It's like, nope, you did it. It's off your plate. I like that it is so simple. I do not personally embrace it. Right. Why? Because you think you can get a better bang for your buck? It's not necessarily bang for buck. It's just like, I've got to fit it into having a potentially dynamic philosophy and committing myself to giving 10% of my income. We've discussed financial independence previously. Sure. How do I frame this? Saying the least I can do is give 10% of my salary kind of implies that I need to work my entire life. Uh, maybe. Or... Well, you're going to have some form of income. It's 10% of your income, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They use the word salary. But it's so got like this, this underlying thing that I should be working to... so I get a better salary so I can basically be earning to give. Oh, no, I think, I think you've totally misunderstood the point of the giving pledge. I think the point is you give 10% of your income, whatever that is, you're done. You don't have to yeah, feel yeah. guilty about, could I give more? You stop. You're done. You gave 10% of your money. That is more, vastly more than most humans. You're done. Not, I should now earn more so that my 10% is bigger or I should start a business and become a billionaire so 10% is $100 million and now I'm an even better person. It's like, you're done. You did it. You gave 10% of your salary. That's all we wanted. You're done. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just can't stop myself like taking the second order effect on that. Sure. It, it, I mean, it could be compatible with fire, right? If you want to retire on $50,000 of income for your family, then you need to save enough to get $55,000 a year so that you can give $5,000 to effective altruism and live still live comfortably on $50,000. Yeah. And then you're done. No more guilt. You did it. What would 5000 extra be? Times that by 30? Yeah, okay. 150 grand. Well, you know, it's an extra 10%, whatever nest egg you're expecting to retire on. You need another 10% than that, right? Should be yeah. pure maths. Or technically 11%, I guess. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. It's an option. I don't, I don't do it, but, you know. 
No, it's just uh, when, when I think about it, I, like I immediately start calculating through, and this is my problem, right? Because it's just like, well, actually, you should just donate it straight away. And then you're like, but now I still need to give 10% of my income after that. So then I need, uh, it's just like this. This is why I think you're overthinking it. I think this is explicitly what it's there for, <laughs> to stop people like you, because I think people like you are the effective altruism bread and butter over the thinky nerds, uh, and they just want to give you a stopping point. No, no, no more thinking. No more, uh, well, what if I gave a lump sum of $100,000 and then that should go throw off dividends of 4% plus capital growth over time, that'll work out to 11% of my... It's like, no, no, stop that. 10% of your income. Just give 10% of your income, and then you're done. And then you don't have to think about it anymore because you gave 10% of your income. <laughs> All right. Do we have a topic tonight or are we done? Did we finish the podcast? It feels yeah. like we might have finished the podcast. I think we're done. All right. Thanks, patrons. Bye. <laughs> thanks, patrons. Bye. Oh, we did the thank the patrons bit in the middle. <laughs> All right. Let's do that. All right. Let's thank the patrons. Thank you very much, patrons, for supporting the podcast. There is still 10 of you. You still cover all our costs. You keep us going. It is extremely nice when we get your feedback. And we're still grateful to do this. It is hard during lockdown to do anything, as I'm sure most of our Australian listeners will know. It is not an easy time, but uh, it is a good excuse to talk to Brian every week. And we love getting your feedback. And we love that you support us. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, podcasters. And thank you, patrons. Thank you, everybody. Always appreciate your listenership, your engagement. And... uh, Kicking off half our conversations that we didn't even know we'd have. Yeah, exactly. When good tangents and made me think. I like thinking. Wonderful. Let's kick across to the main topic. Finally. Finally. So once again, we're talking Matt Iglesias. We've spoken about him previously on a conversation about meritocracy. Former Vox founder and yep. big thinker. Current Substack writer. You'll be shocked to hear. <laughs> of course. And kind of writing about... The case against crisis mongering, which Chris felt obliged to send to me. He thought it was totally up my alley. And you know what? It 100% was up my alley. I just kept reading this and being like, Sometimes I know. Yes, yes. This is everything I've ever thought. All the thoughts that I've ever had, they're all contained in this one email. It was astonishing. And I didn't see it coming. So when we previously talked about Matt Iglesias, we kind of covered off that he is strongly a supporter of the Democrats. It's not like, I wouldn't call him outward left wing because that kind of implies a certain thing but he's on the left side of politics but just staunchly democrat anti-republican democrat middle middle left i think yep Yep. and this piece kind of writes a good amount about the view on politics and how this kind of gets played up in society and it's definitely a thing that i have mentioned offhand to chris i don't think i've ever mentioned to anyone else but it's like an underlying belief structure that I have about how the media works in terms of when there's a Republican presidency, basically, in amongst a whole bunch of other things. So we'll get to that bit as we cover off the whole thing. Sure. So the article is entitled The Case Against Crisis Mongering. And essentially, the article is about, you know, every single time a Democrat gets elected, the right freaks out and says they're going to plunge the entire country into communism and we're going to be living under Mao and there's going to be the Great Leap Forward and it's all going to be a disaster. And then every time a Republican president gets elected, the entire left screen, so it's fascism. This is basically the next Hitler. We're about to go to war with everyone. We'll never have an election again because they're just going to seize power for themselves and take control. And it's like, you know, you can not vote for the other guy because you think their tax policies are bad. And that's a good enough reason to not vote for them. You don't have to be like, it's the next coming of the Antichrist. And that is why this is an existential threat. And everyone must be mobilized this instant to fight the holy war, the defining war of this millennia. It's just like their tax policies are no good. And their stance on abortion isn't that great either. So I'm going to vote for the other guy. That's a good enough reason. It doesn't have to be an existential crisis. Yeah, basically. Like when Trump was elected, and no doubt, there were problems with the Trump presidency. I'm just going to say that there. But as soon as he was elected, I'm like, well, the next four years are going to be horrible, not because Trump is going to be a horrible leader, but because the media is going to make me feel like the world is ending. Yeah, they really did. They really did do that. I felt like, oh, there's going to be this massively racist president and everything's going to be awful and it's going to be all this white supremacy stuff and blah, 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 blah. And there was some of that. There was some crazy stuff with QAnon. But how much of that was just the media playing it up and how much of it was like, this is actually a problem? Yeah, I mean, huge amount was the media playing it up. I mean, Grant Greenwald, who I think I've linked to a couple of times, does some good pieces in like, I'm going to get the stat wrong and someone's going to yell at me, but like the number of people deported under the Obama 
four years prior to the Trump election was greater than the number of people deported under Trump. Like Obama was more against illegal immigrants than Trump was, but you didn't hear anything about that during the Obama areas because he's a good Democrat. But as soon as Trump was elected, it's like he's a racist and he's going to throw everyone out on the streets and he's going to just, you know, kill them all. He's just going to get his kill squads out and murder anyone with a slightly Latina accent. Yeah. And then when it came to the 2020 election, Trump actually did better with the Latino vote than he did in 2016. Yeah, yeah. So interesting insight there. Yeah, that general framing, it reminded me a lot of, you know, I've mentioned in the past that I was quite into punk rock and it reminded me a lot of being into punk rock during George Bush's presidency. Like literally there's a song from Against Me where the chorus is just the word Condoleezza over and over again, screaming about the Iraq war. <laughs> it's just like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe being around all that passionate hate of the other kind of made me skeptical of it to a degree, or made me have a different view on it as I kept my eyes open after the Obama presidency came into place. I don't know. Yep. Yep. So that was interesting. The other big theme, I don't know, we'll see how this conversation goes because we might be just be saying yep to each other a lot and maybe it's good well, that we had the big conversation <laughs> at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a risk. Is that Matt wraps this whole thing into a dialogue around the theme of why is this becoming more of an issue? Why is the fact that there's a Republican presidency seeming like it's such a big disaster now compared to previously lower levels of bipartisanship and kind of ties it into a surprising narrative wrapped around Fight Club? Yeah, yes. I was hoping you'd bring up Fight Club because otherwise I would have to. <laughs> well, how could I not? I mean, I've got opinions on Fight Club, so maybe that's what this conversation will devolve into. Uh -huh. But essentially, like... It's a movie credit podcast now. Sorry, patrons. I hope you wanted to sponsor a movie credit podcast because we just transformed. <laughs> nice. I don't watch enough movies, honestly, to sustain that. But essentially, like, he opens up quoting Tyler Durden from one of the movie speeches, being that we're the middle children of history, no purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. And kind of just mm, saying, yeah. without a real purpose behind the society, without a huge drive for growth or exploration, as in the frontier era, without dealing with the Great Depression, without dealing with World War II, without dealing with the Cold War, America was kind of left with this vacuum, with this spiritual vacuum. And cultural conflicts, the culture war, came to fill that purpose, essentially. And that's why sure. yeah, yeah. the media narrative around bipartisanship well, has blown out. Yes, it does seem that for a population, for a people, for everyone, we like to have some great motivating force. And a lot of the time it is, throughout history, it has been the enemy. It's been the tribe over. It's been the ones we have to conquest. It's been the next nation state, the next tribe, the next city, whoever we're trying to conquest over. And then for a while it was Russia, which I guess is the next city. And then, you know, the 90s were boring, which is when Fight Club came out and everyone was bored. And so we had to be really angry at whoever was the opposite political party. And then we sort of poured all that energy into the war on terror for a while, which this touches on. Yeah, but. You know, even at the time, I don't think anyone thought that that war was the, the level of war like World War II was. Possibly for a few months after 9-11, you could believe that. If we were losing gigantic tower buildings every few months, that would maybe feel on par. But, you know, it happened once. It was a tragedy. And we have 20 years of war with nothing to show for it. It was never a motivating force. So we've all gone back to bickering with each other. And that is a motivating force that the, the true evil in the world is the other political party who is not mine. Yeah. And that's one part of it and it's probably a meta narrative but it okay, touches on a few things in here as well like it touches on climate change and the hyperbole in that basically just calling out everything is a huge crisis and we need to panic about it like it feels yeah. like society right now is coalescing around climate change which i don't know westbrook and carbon credits so good but at the same time it feels like there's other huge crises that we're just completely ignoring like we're in the middle of a pandemic. What future pandemic preparation are we doing right now? None. Yeah, none. No minimal. In the gigantic infrastructure bill that the Democrats are sponsoring in the US, they're cutting pandemic preparedness from it. Like they're not even through this pandemic and they're already like, nah, we're spending too much on this fucking pandemic preparedness. It's ridiculous. Let's build a few more bridges in my electorate so that I can get, uh, get re-elected in four years' time. Like it's just, I don't know. Maybe there is only the ability to focus on one or two narratives at a time. and. There are all these different problems out there and we can only get like the two being 
race conflict in the US and climate change are the yep. only narratives that can fit into the media right now. Yep. We can't fit the wonders of technological progress and the Cold War. That was all we could manage back in the day. <laughs> or Watergate. Uh, yeah. Watergate was a good one. It was a little bit more short-lived, I think. Exactly. Can't even fit the net pandemic that is dominating our lives into it at the moment. No, it's insane. Absolutely insane. Okay, so that kind of covers off the broad themes of the article. There are a few specific sections I wanted to dive in and actually maybe push back against, maybe just open it up for further conversation. We'll see how this goes. So down in the section about basically optimism for the future, a better tomorrow, he calls out this point around we don't necessarily need to trade off progress in humanity in order to avoid climate change. And I totally agree with that. So that's good. But at the same time, he makes this comment that every physicist working at a hedge fund rather than on next generation batteries or modular <laughs> nuclear reactors is a tragedy. Mm. We should do tomorrow what we should have done yesterday. And I just, I look at that and like 10 years ago, Brian would have been like, that is 100% a statement I would make. Right now, Brian goes, I just want to understand why this is the case. Why is it that there are more PhD physicists working in finance than in potentially engineering? Is that even the case for one? Or is it just a base rate problem that there are simply more jobs in finance and there's not enough jobs in engineering for these potential battery engineer physicists PhDs to be working in? And if that's the case, why is that the case? Is it a social status issue that working in manufacturing firms is dirty and yuck and that's something that the media could actually address? Or is it that finance just has its tendrils all over the world and there's just so much money to be made universally through the parasitic function of finance because it applies to sure. everything versus the one function of building a company? Or is it just a problem that we need more companies and by dissuading billionaires, we're not properly incentivizing people to go out and create the companies that will employ those PhD physicists. And why can't they do that in the first instance? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things. There. Like the obvious answer is you can make a lot more money in finance than you can being a PhD physicist. I know actually several PhD physicists, they do fine. They're not earning hedge fund money and they don't really have a path from here to there. You know, it goes back to our billionaire article. Is like, why aren't they trying to be billionaires? They're both pretty smart. I'll bet they could invent something to make them themselves a billion dollars if they applied themselves, but they don't seem to want to. And neither do I. And neither does almost anyone. No one's even trying. No one's even trying to be a billionaire. Uh, yep. And that is how you would have to make a lot of money in physics, is you would have to start a company and try to be a billionaire, rather than the path from employee to billionaire is perhaps more direct in hedge fund. That's actually very true, right? There are plenty of billionaire hedge funds. It might, it might not even be billionaire. It's just like the path to multi-millionaire is easier and yeah, people are happy to go with the safe path rather than the risky path. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a much more safe, obvious path of go work for a hedge fund, go, you know, work for Goldman Sachs, be, an, be a junior analyst, be an associate, be a director, whatever. You know, And you will, if you're pretty smart, earn a lot of money within... 10 years sort of thing. You'll have that half million dollar salary and potentially much, much more. And the path to the $20 million, $50 million salary is pretty direct and you're still an employee. Whereas the path to a $50 million salary doesn't exist as a physicist. The way you do it is by creating a billion dollar company. And then on average, you have created $50 million a year, but you know, it's much more uncertain and no one knows how to do it. And no one even tries. Yeah. And I just don't know how you actually solve that problem. More hedge funds, maybe. That genuinely could be, like, as, as facetious as that sounds, yeah, that yeah, genuinely... Yeah, like venture capital seems like the way that we're trying to solve venture it Venture right capital, now. yeah. Actually getting people to tell smart young things. Like the Thiel Fellowship, don't go to university and get a boring job. I will pay you to actually try to start a company. It's a better idea. There's no one doing that, really. Or not. That is not an interesting people. take that I would not have... Yeah, that I didn't think of at all while I was reading this. And I doubt that I would have come up with this, like, the comeback to Matt's point here, that every physicist working at a hedge fund is a tragedy. The solution to that is having more physicists work at more hedge funds. I mean, it genuinely possibly could be. <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous. I sort of started saying it as a joke, but I think it's possibly genuinely true that, you know, as the competition for talent comes really, really hard and there's not enough, you know, there's not enough rounds to fund for all the VCs who are out there, they're going to start encouraging people. It's like, hey, you got top marks at MIT. Don't go work for the opposing hedge fund. Start a business. Here's a bunch of money. Go and start a business. We need to invest this money somewhere. It could be you. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> like you, you, you do. You just have to get more aggressive in pushing that message on the smart genius physicists to invent new batteries. It's like you're capable of inventing new batteries. Don't go and work for a hedge fund. You could make new batteries and you'll make so much more money and status and whatever it is you want. And you get to do the thing you actually studied and enjoy. Yeah. 
be a green billionaire. You could be the next Elon Musk. Jeff. Yeah, you could. People <laughs> talking to you, Jeff. Ah, fun. Bezos. You could be a billionaire. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Just one single billionaire. All you have to do is give up your other. <laughs> give away $199 billion. It's that easy. <laughs> All right, this has gone off the rails a bit. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. Financial markets, I do think, are important. I think that having some smart people working there is a good thing. I think maybe you want some physicists because maybe they'll balance the people who, well, I don't know. Maybe the physicists who work in finance markets are the ones who are just very greedy and just only in it for the money. I was like, oh, they'll balance all the, you know, finance students who are only in it for the money. And I'm like, no, probably not actually. Probably the personality type attracted to those businesses is the one who's all in for the money, which is tough. Yeah. But I do think that there's some benefits of finance. I do think that there is a parasitic nature to some of it. Matt Levine goes into it with the, the coal power plants of like making a black box to get money to come out. But I do think it adds a lot of value as well. Cool. You know what? I'm actually looking at most of my notes here and most of it is just quoting sections and being like, yes, yes, 100% Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think you want to, so you've mentioned Scar Punk being dissolution, but like, you know, I immediately thought of you when I read this article because you're the only person who was telling me Donald Trump is not the end of the world, right? Every single other friend I had is telling me Donald Trump is the end of the world. And you're like, yeah, he's probably pretty bad, but whatever, the media is blowing it all out of proportion. Not to say you support it because I'm sure... That is what would happen if we were on Twitter, and this is why we're not on Twitter. I mean, Matt makes that point many times in this. He's like, when he's saying that Donald Trump isn't the end of the world, please don't cancel me. Same applies to me. me. (laughs) Yeah, please don't cancel Brian, because then I have to do the podcast alone. I'm just not sure I'm capable of that. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, go ahead with your question. Um, So why do you think you're, you seem uniquely almost of this perspective. How did you get there? Why are you so smart? Is my question. (laughs) Uh, and I think it's uh, rubbed off on me I think you've done a better job convincing me than I have you right I think you've convinced me that Donald Trump is a bad president but not you know a world ending president and America pretty much shambled along okay did worse with the pandemic than it could have but then still invented all the vaccines that we're now using to get out of it yeah I don't know maybe it's just as part of being in that countercultural movement one I'd seen the negative side of it already in Bush, but also I just cultivated an attitude of skepticism. So I've previously told you whenever I used to watch a documentary, I'd immediately, after I watched it, be like mm. all motivated and then get on Google and look up what are the critiques of this documentary just so I can understand the other side. Yep. And by keeping my eye out for those kind of things, I like I just applied the same processes to the Trump presidency. Like I came in kind of skeptical on it and I kept applying as it came through. Like when people say that Trump enabled essentially white nationalists by saying, you know, there were good people on both sides. If you look at the full discussion there and you look at the full quoted text, he he explicitly calls out white nationalists as being bad people. (laughs) And by actually having that commitment to, I suppose, skepticism probably doesn't make me a happier person, but allows me to come across the truth more often. That's good. The truth is important. Maybe it shall set you free. Yeah, I don't know. I would like to live in blissful ignorance sometimes, but I just can't help myself. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, I still don't watch the news, which I'm very pleased with. Sometimes people tell me news and it always makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, probably good that they told me the news that I should not leave my house because I will get arrested. <laughs> I guess that's good news to know. Uh, hard to avoid, but yeah. Well, if it's hard to know, then you didn't actually need to follow the news to find it out. Oh, yeah. No, I said, oh, definitely don't follow the news. I watch the press conferences like two or three times and now just like someone's going to tell me like the press conferences at 11 and 45 by 11.50 guaranteed someone has messaged me to say this is what they're saying in the press conference, Chris. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. I think, yeah, I tried to live on a low information diet for a while there and it definitely improved my life getting out of politics, etc. I do wonder now with this podcast if it's actually increasing my happiness outside of the hours that I talk to you. Like the actual podcast itself, definitely. One of the best experiences I have, especially during lockdown. But the research into it, they just touch on politics all mm. the time and it genuinely like, doesn't make me any happier. So maybe reducing that in my life would be better. I don't know. Mm. We don't even get that political, I thought. No, we don't. It's just like all our sources do. Yeah, Matt Iglesias, yeah, Tyler Cowan, awesome. even. Yeah. Mm. It's just hard to avoid. It was a world that I was happy to stay out of for a few years there. It's hard to avoid. Oh, sorry for dragging you back in, I suppose. No, that's fine. I did it myself. I'm the one who linked you, Ty. Oh, yeah, you did too. I'm glad I did because it's very smart. I like reading his stuff. Do you take anything from this? Would you actually change your approach? Would you become more skeptical in the future on other realms rather than just politics? Is there any cross-learning 
would I become yeah. skeptical in other realms rather than I don't I feel like I'm already too skeptical in general or maybe I'm the right amount of skeptical I mean you know nothing works nothing's real there's a replication crisis all throughout science no battery technology ever pans out no political intervention ever works like I think you know 80% of stuff just doesn't work and we're all just kind of working away in our drudgery doing nothing I think that progress studies has it right of like it, you know progress is really really hard and we're not trying very hard uh, so am I skeptical of more things? I don't think there's anything left to be skeptical of. I like, I like my friends. I like my family. I like hanging out. Uh, the world's problems are not mine to solve. I'm skeptical of the position that they should be. Oh, Diogenes would be happy with you, Chris. Well done. I don't want to be a cynic. I think, I don't know, cynics has connotations of unhappiness. I think that I'm happy and I just think I'm allowed to be happy, basically. As yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, many of you will know, I've had a lot of unhappiness for the last two years. I just don't want to take the world's problems on my shoulders anymore. I like my life, I like my house, I like my partner, I like my friends, I like my parents, I like you, Brian, I like you, dear listener, <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> Bezos. Uh, and I think I'm allowed to be happy with that without trying to solve all the world's problems. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's actually kind of the philosophy. Of- so I, I think I've come around to your way of thinking in that. And I just don't think that a Republican president or, you know, Scott Morrison being Prime Minister of Australia is a disaster, that it's going to ruin the country and everything will be horrible and we'll all go up in flames. I don't have to think that way. I don't want to think that way. And I refuse to think that way. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's also just a fundamental belief in momentum. There's a lot of inertia in society and change takes a lot of work. Things feel fragile and entropy certainly is very powerful, but still takes time to work on all all the inertia we currently have behind us especially when a simple minister can't just fire a bureaucrat. Maybe they can. We don't know that. I want you, listener, to feed back to us. Can a minister fire a bureaucrat? Any bureaucrat. Can they fire an APS3? Can they just walk through the office and be like, you, I don't like your face, you're out of here. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Almost certainly not, based on my understanding of Australian labour laws. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. I never even got to talk about Fight Club, but you know what? I'm happy not to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Read the article, dear listener. It's a good one. It's a winner. It's great. I think it's my favourite Matt Iglesias one, or the one that I've agreed the most with, at least. <laughs> That's why I had to send it to you immediately upon finishing it. I almost sent it to you before I'd finished it, because I'm like, Brian is going to love this. Well, you know what? It's coffee bedtime. It's coffee bedtime. I'm really desperately trying to work up a statistic on political polarisation. I know that they have calculated this. I see pretty graphs with overlaps. Oh, this is the exact exact graph that i'm thinking of and i want to bet like are we are we at the nadir of this is this as bad as it gets or is it going to get way worse oh it's going to get worse how much worse man it's really bad three worse can it's i find that question three again? worse 27 percent of democrats see the republican party as a threat to the nation's well-being 36 percent of republicans same in the other direction this was in 2014 under a democratic president Oh, 100%. That'd easily be three points higher. What was it? 37%? 27%? 27 for Democrats, 36% for Republicans. Yep. I'm going to say, as of right now, it would be like over 30 for Democrats, over 40 for Republicans, easy. Oh, way over 30 for Democrats. This was under a, a Democratic yeah, president, exactly. right? As soon as Trump got elected, that probably goes to 50%. <laughs> At the very least, the numbers switch. I'd say that'd be... Uh, I still think they're parody, but yeah. Oh, this is such good graphs, but they don't give me any faith that they're going to get any newer. Dang. Are they like time series graphs? No, I don't have a metric that I can point to. All right, this may have to be a loosey-goosey bet, but by 2025, not a five-year bet. I don't think we've got a five-year bet at the moment. Just after the next presidential election in the US, will the US be more or less partisan than it is today? And we're just going to, it's just going to have to be one of these loosey-goosey bets that we'll have to judge when it comes to it. It's a tricky one. Are you okay with that bet? No, I just went on to think. I'm just trying to think through potential statistics. No, fair enough. Um, I think the easiest statistics are going to be through election statistics. So if we base it on 2024 election polarization, like how strongly regions vote for different parties, yeah, that might be okay. the easier way of doing it. Yep. And we can figure out what yep. that is. But if, if we at least draw the lines in the sand being the elections, then I'm happy to base it on that. All right. So 2024 presidential election, is it going to be more or less polarised than the 2020? I think it's going to be less polarised. Oh, really? Because you were saying more polarisation. It's only getting worse from now. But you think that there was a particular artefact of Trump? I think artefact of Trump and artefact of media talking up how bad Trump is. Right. 
So you think that America gets less politically polarized under a Democratic president because the media tends to lean left? Yep. That's my working theory. Hmm. Right. I was expecting to take the low side. Whatever. I'll take the high side. This is a weird <laughs> Sweet. I'm happy with weird. That's nice. Keeps things interesting. It's interesting to flesh out your theories of political polarization, though, that it's not just an inherent structure. It's a, so if I can expand on your theory, the media tends to lean left and, you know, vilifies any Republican president. And that causes the Republicans to dig in and be like, it's not that bad. You're being ridiculous. And the, the Democrats to believe the media, basically, because that's what they read. And that it causes the polarization. Yep. It's not yeah, like okay. the full working theory, but it's a good summary of it. Yeah. It's not an unreasonable model. Cool. All right. What's the last thing that we do? I forget. The last thing we do is Diablo. Woohoo! I never remember now. Let me just bring up Diablo.run because I actually haven't been following that much over the last couple of weeks. And there is no good fresh records. So that's why I haven't really been following it. I've been checking out the streamers. There's this new YouTube channel. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> what is it about? Well, it's some guy going through like all these old world records and giving commentary, but like you watch it and you can shave half an hour off your speedrun time. So all I can do is recommend I, I, I have heard that. Is it Summoning Salt? Is that who we're talking about? No, it's this new guy called BK. Yeah, I don't know. It's Brian. Brian has a YouTube <laughs> channel. He got bored of only being a media personality by voice and he wants you to see his pretty face as well. Go follow him at BK probably. Yeah, something like that. It'll be linked in the show notes for yeah. sure. But... What, 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 what would I Google if I wanted to find you? If I were typed into YouTube right now, how am I going to find you? Uh, I think it's going to be like commentating world record history, Diablo. History of Diablo to feed on commentary. Mm, it's all Mr. Lama. You're not famous yet. Of course, it's Mr. Lama. It's all <laughs> Mr. Lama. Oh, man, that guy is all like Mr. everywhere. Lama. All right, you're just going to have to find it in the show notes, dear listeners. I don't know how people are finding it otherwise. I'm not like promoting it anywhere, but I'm still getting comments and stuff. The algorithm is much more powerful than YouTube or we're just much worse podcasters. It's one of the two. It's hard to say. Other than that, what's happening in Diablo 2? They had open beta, so they were trying things out on Battle.net again. I know I talked about that in the last podcast, but they had it again the following week, but it was just open to all the public to try out. So that was cool. Everyone got on and stress tested the service. I didn't. I was busy doing family stuff, unfortunately. No. Seemed like fun. Seems like there's a whole bunch of extra glitches in there, which is not great. Like, if you're going to no. be playing a revamped version of a 20-year-old game, you kind of hope it has less glitches rather than more. Yeah, that's the direction that I would want it to go in. Yep. We'll see how everything plays out in a month or so. I think it's September 23rd, the actual remaster comes Ooh. out. So there you go. That's pretty soon. Cool. How exciting. So that's it. That's the podcast for this week. It was a weird one, i got to say. It was a weird one. It was like, oh, we don't have any feedback. Let's just talk for 40 minutes on our feedback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got this really in-depth article. Let's barely talk about that at all. Hmm. Yeah, let's, let's skim the high points and miss a couple of points in the middle. Oh, well, I hope you enjoyed it, listener. I did, as always. I like these conversations that go off the rails because I don't know what we're going to talk about. And that means I have an interesting conversation with Brian, which is really the point of this whole podcast. It is. It's fun. It's good stuff. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. actually have to put some work in and i don't do that for this podcast i skim read something about 30 seconds before i dial into you and then i shoot from the hip all right that's how we roll